We are back, everybody. This is the Product Uncensored Show with your host, Colin Pell. And today we are at episode 11. All right. For our YouTube users, check it out. I'm using a new background again. I want to give a shout out to um, YouTube uh, follower, Salil Sethi, for correctly guessing the background of the last episode. So check this one out for size and let me know in the comments. Um, and, you know, also show some love for this show uh, by subscribing. And don't forget, don't just subscribe. Click on the bell icon next to it as well because that means that you will be notified immediately when our new stuff drops. Um, for people who don't watch videos, we are also available on all major podcasting platforms such as Anchor, Spotify, Google, and Apple. All right, now we can go into the good stuff. Episode 11, another special episode. And what's so special about today's episode? For starters, we have our first COO on the show. And second, he's also our first Canadian guest. He's now based in Singapore with my doc. Please welcome to the show, uh, Graham Kennedy. Hi, Graham. Thank you, Colin. Thank you, Colin. Looking forward to being here. Yes, very nice. Um, so once again, Graham was actually suggested by a, a mutual friend, someone who actually follows the show. So um, I really want to give a shout out to Andreas. Um, for actually recommending Graham for the show and I'm so happy to, ha to have him and he actually got back to me in record time so that's that's amazing as well um, so Graham um, I wanted to start by actually taking a different route usually I, um, I ask uh, them to tell tell us about themselves a little bit but I want to start with something different I wanted to ask you a question um, is do you consider Singapore home now Okay. I am a permanent resident here in Singapore. And when, when I say I'm going home, whenever I'm somewhere, uh, I'm referring to Singapore. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. And how, how long have you lived in Singapore now? Uh, over five years now. So five years and a few months. We, we came here a few years, uh, five years ago. My wife had an opportunity from within her company. She's a, a superstar in a very large company. They gave her the opportunity to come here. And I was trailing spouse. So I came without a job and without I mean, I, I've lived in China before. I've been to Asia many times, but uh, I had no knowledge of Singapore. So I, I came without really knowing what I was getting myself into. Okay. Wow. That's, that's really, really interesting. Um, for, for our viewers and listeners, so Graham has a website, grahamkennedy.com. And I actually um, browsed through the site. And I, I, I was very uh, piqued by the interest. Of, my interest was very piqued by how you presented, you know, your story. And oh, it's almost your resume in cartoon-like form. So for those of you who want to check it out, please go to grahamkennedy.com. So coming back to, to you, Grim, you are actually from Canada, am I right? Correct, from Vancouver. Mm -hmm. Okay, so why don't you now, you know, let, let's go into a little bit about um, how you ended up from, you know, well, what, sorry, let's start by talking about, you did a Bachelor of Arts in Simon Fraser University in Canada, right? Um, yeah. what, what was the major in? Was there a major? I was a major in, in MIS, uh, Information Systems. I, I started out doing a few years of computer science, loved it, loved technology, but I realized that that wasn't the path I wanted to go. Uh, and it was around that time I realized there was a marriage between computer science and business, and that was called information systems. Uh, so I went down that path for the last few years. Right, right. And so your first experience, was uh, what, what was your first experience? Was it with um, 
Gait Productions? Yeah, a company no one I'm sure has, has heard of. It was a small boutique shop when I joined. Uh, we eventually became the technology arm of a healthcare uh, company. Um, so essentially they did the healthcare stuff, we did the technology, and eventually the entire thing was acquired by Qualcomm. So it was a pretty good exit. I started there in kind of a project manager, front end, small company, catch-all kind of role. Uh, and as we grew, I moved into more of an operations and head of product role. And it's probably my first exposure to actual people who had a title named product manager up until that point. I think people were doing that work around me, but I wasn't actually unaware that that's what they were doing. So let's talk about that a little bit. Because you, you said that you had a few different roles and then you, you switched into that head of product role. So does that mean that yeah. your, first, uh, your first professional role in product was actually a head of product role? I think if you're saying officially, yes. Unofficially, I was doing the role of a product manager before then, but I had kind of an ambiguous title. Okay. So a bit okay. of an unusual uh, quick jump into a leadership role, yeah. Right, right. Okay. Yeah, because it's, it's very interesting um, that, you know, because most people officially tend to start off as product managers and then they sort of move up yeah. the ranks. Um, so for you, right, when you switched, because like, like we were discussing, your official role was the first role was head of product. Um, how, how was that for you in terms of transitioning into that first product role and it's a product leadership role? Yeah, it was an interesting time. Uh, quite frankly, I was probably one of the worst product managers you can imagine. Uh, the people who were around me who were my product influences, honest to goodness, weren't strong. They, they were project influences. They were strong, but product-wise, they, they weren't so strong. Uh, so it didn't, it was actually until I got into my second job at a company called Global Relay, where I met some really strong product people and had a strong product man uh, manager who led the entire product function. That's when I had all my, uh, my first round of aha moments when I was like, oh, that's how it's supposed to be. And all those challenges I had at the other company that I struggled through, actually, many people have struggled with this before in a product context, and, and they kind of solved it. Um, but it was, it was a bit of a challenge initially. Fortunately, I had a, even though I didn't have a lot of product influence around me, I had a lot of very smart people around me, uh, and that really helped out a lot too. Um, so I think just kind of combining all that together really made it a, a lot easier than what it probably should have. I think looking back on it, I probably should have drowned a little bit more than I did. <laughs> okay. All right. So let, let's then go to Global Relay because right after that, I believe you headed over to, to China to take a role with Global Relay, right? Yeah. Uh, so I was actually, it's a company in Vancouver. It was growing really quickly. Uh, I made the jump into that role, more into the project management stuff um, at that point. Uh, took a step back initially into an individual contributor role. Uh, and then I got an opportunity to jump over into China again, trailing spouse. My wife had an opportunity in Shanghai. I said, I'm, I'm ready to do it. In that case, so I took my job with me. Uh, and I worked basically in a product slash project role out of Shanghai. We had a lot of customers in the region. We had very little presence. Uh, most of those customers were enterprise, so they don't come to you as simple implementation things. They want to talk about radical overhauls. Uh, and that's where I kind of got my first taste of enterprise product management. Okay. So... You were a, because your, your official title is Global Major Accounts Project Manager. Um, but yeah. so was it more project focused than product focused in its end? It was a split, but I think the reality was the fact that um, because I was a project manager, because there was a project to be managed out of that region, but also the projects weren't about implementations or timelines or budgets. They were about uh, essentially how our customers wanted interact with our service. So it's very heavy on product discovery, product exploration, product conversations, and the trade-offs you do as a product manager, more so than what a project manager would do, which is essentially 
timelines, budgets, and yeah. scope. Yeah, so it sounds like you had a project manager title, mm-hmm. but a product manager um, actual yeah. <laughs> role. It, it was a bit of an ambiguous one, but yeah, that's, that's how it is. Okay. And, and for you, right, moving from Vancouver to China, how, how difficult was that transition? Because, um, yeah, this is your first role, professional role um, outside of Canada, right? You know, quite frankly, for me, it wasn't that big of a deal. My, my wife is Taiwanese Canadian. I've been to North Asia probably 20 times before then. I've never been to China, but if you've ever been to Shanghai, it's a very cosmopolitan city. It's very Western focused, lots of Western brands. Um, most days I spoke English, uh, not my very, very poor broken Mandarin. Uh, so the, the, the culture shock, I think it, it wasn't there. I mean, if you've ever been to Vancouver, it's a very, very uh, Pacific Rim city. Mm-hmm. Right, a lot of Asian influences. So there, yeah. there was no real culture shock with that aspect. And going into a bit of a Western environment, it was all right. I, I liked it. And when I worked with large companies there, they were largely MNCs mm-hmm. uh, where they officially had English as their language. So uh, I think I think a lot of things worked in my favor. It could have gone the other way if any one of those things weren't there. Mm-hmm. But what about in terms of the working culture? So it's one thing to have, you know, English as, as your primary medium of communication, have MNCs. Um, but the part that I'm curious about was, you know, what about the internal workings for the work yeah. culture there? For me, my internal was largely internal in other companies. So my internal was exposure to them. So I would go into those companies and work with them. Uh, and, and some aspects were pretty radically different. I mean, I think, uh, and this is something that I kind of talk about, at least back then, I think there's a large focus for good or for bad on, on inputs and outputs. So like, I think people were measured on how long they work and what, how many widgets they created while they were there. And it was a bit of a different, that part was a bit of a culture shock for me because I came from an environment where it's mm-hmm. like, your job is to drive impact. You know, you, you make positive changes and that's how you're going to be measured. And if you do that in one hour a day, or if you make one widget a year, it doesn't matter. Um, whereas it seemed like how people were incentivized there was a little bit different. Uh, so I had to change my ways because if I was looking to build for others, I had to recognize that some of these people wanted us to be a feature factory for them. They wanted to be able to say to their boss, we did 30 things and it didn't matter if those 30 things were good or not. So mm-hmm. there were times when I had to adjust how I communicated. I'm, I'm glad I did. Those, that was a bit of a culture shock, I would say. Um, I wasn't expecting that. Um, so I think in terms of culture, that, and I think that's changing a lot too in, in Asia, by the way. In my experience this year, I think people are starting to focus a little bit less on those things and a little bit more on whatever you do with your time, how are you making the world a better place kind of conversation. Um, so I think that was one of the first major cultural things I had to And so l- let's talk a little bit more about what you're saying, because that was the, mm-hmm. the sort of the prevalent cult- working culture at the time. How did you adapt yeah. um, to, to, you know, sort of still have the, the the output but still be able to focus on the outcome as well yeah i mean i think part of it was changing the nature of the conversation so when people say we need this this and this it was taking a step back and saying i hear you let me document that let me write it down let me give you the lack of better terms let me give you the impression that what you're saying to me is what i'm going to do but really what i'm doing is just capturing what you're saying initially and honestly this is no different than internal stakeholders anywhere as a product (laughs) person i'm sure you know that uh the first thing is just to capture it and it's a little bit deeper right uh going into the motivations and inspirations behind it and also trying to get a bit of a sense of why each individual person at the table is trying to get something out of that conversation that's different from the person beside them and tying that together in a nice narrative that I can then play back to them and say, okay, so I understand 
this is what you're trying to accomplish here. And I'll draw it out on the whiteboard or wherever it is. And as we go step by step and discover each one, we realize that some of them are probably less necessary than others. Uh, exploration of, you know, some of them are going to cost more than others, things like that, just the things you would do as a professional product person. And play it back to them and put the onus back onto them to say, look, I've laid it out for you. This is what you're asking for. Here are some of the creeps in this kind of uh, workflow you've come up with. Let me talk about some of my recommendations. Uh, and then the story kind of kind of bounces back and forth. Like they, they take that story and they're like, okay, I get it. Everything we're asking for actually probably doesn't make sense. And that's probably because internally we're disjointed. So thank you, Graham, for bringing this together for us. And then it comes back into my court. I'm like, okay, well, now that you've recognized that, let's draw like simpler diagram, which is far more injections of what I think should be done and that that works better for the company. And then it's back into their plate to discuss and then back into mine. And then eventually the goal is to take control of that story and basically turn it from they need 30 things by in 30 days to actually they need to achieve, you know, a few things in the next 60 days. And here's the way that I would get there. And you know what, it's probably going to be a bit cheaper and a bit faster. So let's talk about my way first. Um, it's not about my way versus their way. I think it's more mm -hmm. about a product mindset and you know this, right? When product people come into a conversation, a lot of the times we're just, we're just saying like, look, I don't think we need anything that you're asking for here. You're not really focusing on a goal. You're focusing on things that you want to do. And that was it, right? I mean, that was probably my first taste of really trying to take control of a conversation and playing it back to people and then having them adopt my way of thinking and then bring my way of thinking back into the conversation. And now we're all talking like product people. Uh, that was probably the first major thing. It didn't work in all places. Some customers, just like some sales leaders or marketing leaders are pretty stubborn. Um, but it does help. It does help take control of the conversation. It builds up some empathy. And all of a sudden at that point, you're now collaborating, right? You're building a solution together and you're not building your version versus my version or partner versus vendor. It's, mm -hmm. it's collaboration. That's, that's amazing stuff. And so for the listeners, I think um, what Graham has highlighted here is really, really important um, from a product perspective, you know, because um, regardless of where you come from and where you go, I think the idea of trying to collaborate, trying to understand motivations, uh, I think that's really, really important. So thanks for sharing uh, that. So then let's now, you know, go fast forward a little bit. You then went sure. back to, to Vancouver to become a director of product at Clio. Yeah. And yeah, Clio. Yeah. Well, sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. I want, just wanted <laughs> to, yeah. Oh yeah, Clio's fantastic. They actually just raised uh, $250 million US. Um, they won, you know, cultural awards for being most of our cultures for SMEs in Vancouver, growing faster. I've never seen a company have such sustained growth. I mean, year after year, uh, dozens of employees joining every month, revenues floating through the roof. It's probably one of the great success stories. I think of small companies that people have never heard of. And I attribute a lot of it to the co-founders who have a lot of strength and influence on me, Jack Newton, Ryan Govro. They came in wanting to build a software company a little bit differently. And they were focusing on, I think, outcomes. They were focusing on the value that they were delivering to their customers and not just revenue, right? It wasn't just, I want to make money or I want to make a lasting impression. It was, I want to actually change some people's lives for the better. Uh, and I'm going to do that by solving real meaningful problems in a better way than these customers know at the right time. It was around 2008. Um, I mean, financial crash aside, uh, it was also kind of an era where everyone was trying to move from desktop to uh, to the web or to mobile. But it was a funny era in development in my mind because um, that that means nothing now, right? If you were to go to an investor and say, "Give me thirty million dollars because I want to take a desktop app and make it, you know, cloud-based," they'd laugh in your face. Back then, they didn't even use the word cloud. It was 
I can't remember what words we were using back there. It wasn't cloud, right? It was mobile as an app. Like you could raise money just by saying you wanted an app. Um, so they were doing something at the, exactly the right time where I think the legal industry was looking and saying, we need to do things differently. Um, and they came in and did things radically different. And it's an incredible growth story. I encourage anyone listening to just kind of go take a look at their website, take a look at their growth story, listen to how they speak, because if you don't get a lesson out of 10 minutes of listening to one of those guys speaking, you're probably not listening closely enough. Mm-hmm. And I, right. sorry, I didn't even talk about the role. I just talked about the company. But yeah, I headed up the product team, but that included engineering and design and infrastructure and all that. So it was, it was the most senior person on the technical side in the organization. We grew from about 20 to 40 in a year. Um, that's when I moved, uh, first moved, again, Trailing Spouse, um, Philadelphia. But in that time, we grew pretty quickly. We grew the um, organization quickly, we tripled the revenue. It was, it was a fantastic opportunity. We were focusing on a very targeted cohort, which is another, I think, product thing that we all get lost sometimes. Of all the places we could have focused, we chose just a few and we nailed down their problems. We met their pains and gains head on and solved for them. And that exploded in our, our total addressable market because, you know, you sell for a thousand, but really you're solving for a hundred thousand when you do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and once we saw for the first thousand, we realized we had a solution that would scale without any cost and any input and any investment um, for that cohort. And it was a fantastic time. There's a lot of learnings there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, go, going back to the word, I think back then, you know, before clout became, you know, the the word in our dictionary, yeah. um, uh, I don't know. I used to we, we used to just talk about it as data centers, right? You, yeah. <laughs> you're putting stuff in data, data centers. centers. The web. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it never sounded as cool as the cloud. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. I, honestly, I don't even remember what terms we were using back then, but yeah, it was just the web. You know, it's like, was that is that a desktop app or is it a web? It's the web. And yeah. that kind of meant. That meant that it was a cloud or it was an app and that meant it was mobile. Like those are the words we used back then. There's no concept of you know, centralized data storage and, and all the pipelines that come with it. Mm-hmm. And when you joined um, Clio, right, you're saying it was a team of 20, is that right? I actually joined as their first product person as a product manager. So they, I think in like all companies, there's about 65 people then. I don't know, probably my guess close to a thousand now. When I left, it was about 200 in a year and a bit. Um, like a lot of small companies, they grow up, uh, the CEO and the co-founders, you know, they started the company for a reason. They have this vision. The vision kind of takes them out a few years. Uh, it takes a few years sometimes to build what you originally came to build the company around, right? So you are the product manager at that time. You're the sole one. You know what the first 50 things the app needs to do. And so you're just cranking on engineering. You're cranking on marketing. You're, you're adding up. And then at one point, you kind of take a step back and go, I got where I wanted to go. Now what? And then you look around and you realize, oh, yeah, there's this thing called product. And so I came in as the first product manager. I was there for a few months. My recommendation was this team's growing too fast. You can't just have a product manager sitting in the middle, side by side with the scrum master behind the scrum. You, you need to build it up properly, structured. That's my background. Mm-hmm. And I'll do it. And so I actually stepped into a director role and then started to build the first step of the product management team. And I looked at their website the other day and looked at the profiles of the people they have in their team. They're exceptional. I don't know who they are, but. Just looking at them on LinkedIn, you know their their profiles are exceptional. So they're attracting you know the top talent in and around that region. Yeah, I want to go a little bit more into that part where you said you know you you came in as the first product manager and then you told uh, yeah. the the top management or the founders to say hey you know we can't run this way. Um, how did you make that? The, the case for that, you know, did you just go out for beers and say, hey, you know, we really need to expand the team or was it, you know, through, through a, a slight deck, you know, what did you do? 
no slide deck. The last conversation was over beers, though. Um, <laughs> but it, it was pretty obvious. Uh, if you look at the org chart, it, it was really funny. You had, uh, and the CEO has a master's degree in machine learning. Like, so obviously, he's got an engineering mindset. I'm very smart on that, that side. There's 20, 20 of us or so, spaghetti lines all drawn up into the CEO. And then you had like a chief marketing person with a proper org under marketing and a proper org under sales. But then you had like 20 lines running. So right away, it was obvious. Something had to, someone had to go in there and corral this. Second of all, I think when I first came in there, I might, I took on the hardest thing I could find. It was kind of Greenfield, right? We, they had this giant list of things. Engineers are essentially just kind of uh, making pull requests and, and committing changes all the time. And in fact, there, there were times and they all freely admitted that, you know, support would come crying to engineering saying, hey, you guys made a whole bunch of changes. We didn't even know about this. And now customers are calling us and we don't even know how to support it. Uh, there, there was things happening that they weren't, well, that was bad, but there weren't things that were so bad. Like it was just, there was just, everyone was doing things the way they understood the world to work, right? You had these really smart people working together. Uh, and so I came in and said, look, I'm just going to take on the hardest project. I took on a project around accounting features. Um, doesn't sound hard, but in that world, it's a little bit tricky. No, no, it's hard. Uh, I can, <laughs> I can relate. You could appreciate, yeah. Uh, and I won't go through all the gory details, but basically over the course of a few months, we launched a, a number of really good large features. But on top of that, it wasn't about that. It was about how we brought it to market. It was about how we sampled to go to market plan, how we brought in marketing and sales, how we actually put a business case behind it, how we put data behind it, how we put metrics behind it. Uh, you know, how I came out and said these types of features are ideal for four to six people on our IC, ideal customer profile chart. But not good for these two. Like here's here's how I recommend expanding sales and marketing money. Here's how I bridge the gap between product and I did this as a product manager. So I, I had all my time focused on this one effort. And I, I brought everyone together multiple times, including the you know co-founders and others and heads of departments. And I think people realized, oh, okay, that's what product is. You're not just a troll sitting in the basement as a liaison between sales and engineering, you know, writing down requirements. You're actually driving real business opportunity. Uh, and so I think. Combine that with a few other things, and then yeah, the beer. I just said to the CEO, it has to be done regardless. Mm -hmm. And I think it's going to be me. And um, we had a good conversation about it, and that's how I transitioned into that role pretty quickly. Yeah. So, so it sounds like you you did the. Um, I don't, some people call it textbook, but I think this is usually what people would recommend. You sort of like put wins on the board, you know, show some yeah. change, and then make the case for why you know this this needs to to grow. Because I think you've shown them that there is a better way of doing it. And this function is important, yeah. like you're saying, right? You know, it's not just yeah. a bunch of people sitting in <laughs> in a basement somewhere. Yeah. But also, you were saying that in that role, you were also taking care of uh, engineers uh, as well as, as design, right? Again, so that's another sort of almost like another transition where now you're not just taking care of the product function, but also taking yeah. care of the engineering function. How what challenges did you have there? Uh, a lot. <laughs> so uh, first of all, it gives me a true appreciation of how important, how valuable, and how early on a VP of Eng or head of Eng or your senior engineering person needs to be in a small company. Um, I think a lot of times people just kind of think about it, get a pool of engineers and that's it. You know, I'll tell them what to do, they'll sort it out. Uh, it, was a, it was a bit of a struggle for me. I, I, there's certain areas where I just I couldn't offer advice. You have people with master's degrees in computer science. What am I going to do to tell them how to architect something better? But that wasn't my role. And the advice I get to a lot of product people, that's not your role, right? You, yeah. As a product manager, you don't run engineering ever. The fact that I was doing it, it was because I was head of essentially all things production. Um, but you don't run it, right? You, you don't sit there. 
you don't hire and fire engineers, you don't promote them, you don't, you have nothing to do really with anything other than prioritizing what the product should be and rallying engineers and designers and everyone else in the company around your vision so you can take it forward. So in that aspect, it was actually very similar to what a product manager would do. Um, I also relied heavily on the lead, the, you know, the more senior people in the organization, the more senior engineers. Um, they did have um, some informal structure. Uh, teams had obvious team leaders, so I worked with them. Uh, but I think the real challenge and something that I probably didn't do very good on, and I think whoever came in and replaced probably did a wonderful job, is the engineering roadmap. Um, you know, that is, what as an engineering team are we trying to accomplish? Not just yeah. writing code features. Whereas my focus is almost exclusively on the product direction, right? I'm like, like whatever drives value is what engineering is working on. And I kind of ignored a huge chunk of what engineering should be working on. So if I was to go back and do it again, I think I would put a lot more emphasis on engineering first principles. Yeah, I was going to ask you that question because part, part of the, <clears throat> um, the, the challenges that I would foresee that would come up if you are both heading the engineering and product function is that from an engineering perspective, would you be able to actually, you know, understand the technicalities of what needs to be done in that sense? Yeah. Um, but yeah, but thank you for, for answering yeah. that. Um, and I think it's a good thing for for product people to bear in mind as well that even when we are doing our roles, you know, to build the 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 solutions to the problems, we also have to think about the technical side of things. Um, because most of the time, and, and I mean, you you can you can relate. Tell me, you know, relate a story if you do have one of you know where we tend to sort of break down because you know we want this to go out as soon as possible you know the, the mvp is yeah. so popular um, but in yeah. in doing that we actually build up a lot of tech debt and we never pay that debt right yeah it's a good point i mean my advice to product managers especially those who say i don't have a comp side degree is that going to hold me back and my advice is no it shouldn't but my advice to them is always this you can't be left out of the conversation that is, if the engineering team is sitting around and they're having a complex technical conversation and they are going to make a meaningful impact to the product and the value that you're delivering, and you don't understand what's going on around you, and you come back a few weeks later and realize that everything started going in the other direction, you're not technical enough for that role at that time. That's my guess. Now, you can get up to speed very quickly, and my advice to a lot of product managers is just constantly go to the, whoever's leading that team, that small squad of five or six people, and just pull them aside, do a lot of pre-grooming sessions, have them take you through it, have them diagram. Um, I've never met an engineer in my life who wouldn't do that and who hasn't demonstrated that they will help you help them. Um, at the end of the day, that is helping them, right? Because they need to tell a story around why engineering principles need to go first. And if you're in a product team and you're an engineer, you're probably building product. You're not building engineering stuff. You're just trying to get the stuff out as fast as possible. Um, so I think for the first part is just anyone out there listening, you, you just you can't be left out of the conversation. But frankly, if all you're doing is building filters for I don't know, mustaches for pictures or whatever that Silicon Valley uh, Ed joke was, um, it's probably not that complex. You know, like if you're if you're a product manager at Facebook and you're all you're doing is ads, you probably better be an expert in ads, not in you know design patterns for computer science. That's probably not going to matter as much to you. Um, but I think that's kind of where that ends. But I think it's really important for product managers to really understand how to rally engineering. Um, and I, sometimes, and I've done this in a number of ways, I can't say any one of them has been the most successful. I remember at Global Relay where we spoke about earlier, we just took a stop. We just said for a whole month, engineering just runs the roadmap. We're not going to do anything other than engineering. The lead engineer is like, perfect. I'm going to sit down and fix these eight things. We still treated it the way a product manager would treat it. We just said we're not going to focus on features. That worked okay. Um, but the reality is you can't just, 
like eight, eight years of debt and just fix it in a month, right? It's an ongoing thing. Um, so I've done other things, you know, like forcing things even as basic as refactoring tasks into user stories to make sure that no code goes out unless it's gone through a proper engineering practice. That's good for the here and now. That's good for anything we write right now, but it doesn't help that anything we've written in the past. I think ultimately the answer to this, and, and for product managers who are new to this, this is a bit of a, a complex domain, but you've got to start to look much, much bigger. Um, you've got to start to look at the impact of what the product is going to do on the organization as a whole and on your customers as a whole. You've got to start to look at the business value of what you're delivering because if you can tell a good narrative around a year, I'm not saying a roadmap, just a narrative of where you're going to be in a year or two years and how the product's going to work and the types of customers you're going to go after and the markets you're going to be in. And you do this with product marketing and marketing. If you can tell a really cohesive, elegant story about where the product is going and how it's going to bring the company into follow suit, which is what I consider a product-led organization, right? Product at the forefront and it's product saying, here's, here's the markets we're going after, here's the customers we're going after, here's the value we're going after, here's even the pricing and the positioning and packaging we're going to use to go get those customers. And we know this because we have so strong understanding of the customers who matter to us and the users who matter to us and the pain points they have. And we know there's 25 different sectors we can be in, we've chosen to do. And we're going to go deep in those. And once you start to get, I think, a little bit of um, support and rally behind those types of things at the senior level, it actually buys you a little bit of breathing room because you don't have to go back to your VP of sales and say, I'm not going to do that thing for you because, and then you have to go tell a long story about other priorities. You've actually already told that story. You've told the story of where we're going and why we're going there and why the work that you're doing is actually going to be narrow focus instead of work. And we're going to focus on this stuff to the exclusion of others that's less valuable and the companies behind this. The onus is not on me as a product person that time to tell someone, no, I'm not going to quickly hack out some new feature for you that's going to accrue new more debt. The onus is on you now to tell me why your thing that's sitting outside of the story I'm telling is more important than what I'm working on. Mm -hmm. When you do that, you actually buy some breathing room for your team, right? No one comes to you and says, I need something in six days. You go to them and tell them, we're going to deliver you something in 60 days. But it's going to be complete, be comprehensive, and it's going to be ready to hit the market, and it's going to be ready to scale, and here's how. That is that to me is kind of the difference between you know your your product manager focusing on the day to day and your senior product managers and even your principals who are now focusing on a little bit further out. Yeah. Um, and certainly when you get to the senior level, your directors and VPs are probably already thinking beyond that. So it's a bit of a long story, but I think that's how you kind of tackle. But in the moment, there are ways to tackle it. Quite literally, the moment you write a line of code, it's already tech debt, right? It's somehow, some way, it's going to weigh down something else in your system. So you're already introducing tech debt. You can take mitigation steps as you go. Wow. Wow. That was a very comprehensive um, answer. I loved it. I loved it. Um, so now let, let's now go to how you ended up in Singapore. Uh, was it because you were following your wife as well? or Okay. Yeah. Other trailing spouse, yeah. <laughs> and uh, your first uh, job in Singapore was with Ninja Van. Yeah. So in Singapore, I've actually kind of bounced around a little bit, not by design, but by that point. Uh, I kind of went to Ninja Van. My wife jokingly said, you just, if you don't find a job very soon, you're going to get sent back to Vancouver. I'm like, okay. <laughs> she said that half jokingly. Uh, I, I know about one bunch of wonderful companies. I just met with Ninja Van initially, and I just said to him, look, it's only going to be short term. I, I landed. I'd love to do something. I'd love to do something. More importantly, I like to work with a local company, and it, it was very local. I mean, I had the only Anglo name uh, on the development floor, as far as I can remember, right? So it was a very Singaporean, Malay, Indonesian kind of group of people, and it was fantastic, wonderful people, very inspiring. Um, but I was only there for a short period of time by design. I, I just landed. I just wanted to, to build something interesting, and we did, um, mm -hmm. which is still, from what I understand, still being used five years later, so that's pretty cool. 
and scale to new markets, uh, leaving a small impact uh, in a short period of time. Mm-hmm. So you're saying that you wanted to only be there for a while by design. What I mean, yeah. if you why not why not extend it if you if you enjoyed it, or was it because the contract ended? No, it's it less about the contract. It's more just about I, I kind of wanted to do something a little bit bigger. Um, uh, I took the job kind of as a product manager just because, I, like I said, I was really curious about the local um, market. I actually took it very quickly. I didn't even do a large job search. It was just I met these guys. I'm like, you guys are onto something special, and your founders are really amazing. Uh, for a short period of time, I just want to see what it's like. Um, but then I moved into a couple more senior roles, as you can see, um, for yeah. the next few years, uh, which is um, kind of where I enjoy being, right? I mean, I, I mm. love product management. I'll never step away from it. And usually I have to hold myself back from diving into conversations on the office, yeah. uh, writing a story myself or running a <laughs> workshop myself just because I got I to gotta hold myself in. Um, so I still love that and I never will stop loving it. But, you know, as your career progresses, you start to take on new responsibilities and you think differently. And I just wasn't thinking at the user story kind of level and building features. So that was yeah. kind of a little bit less of what was concerning to me. Yeah, interesting. So I don't know whether you know, but the first person I actually interviewed on this show was actually the ex-director uh, of product for Ninja Van. Um, I did ask him though, did you know Graham? And said, no, Graham actually came before before me. Yeah. Yeah. So I think I was the first product person there too, if I'm not mistaken. Myself and another guy joined at about the same time. Uh, Long story behind it, so I won't tell, but really interesting story how I pivoted in there from going, I was about to join a, a very well-known company um, in Southeast Asia, and last mm-hmm. minute I joined this one. Um, I think he and I were like the first two people with the word product in our title there too. So another time where we we stepped in and kind of showed, you know, what can be done with product management principles. All right. So t- tell me a little bit more about that part where you nearly joined a very big company and decided to, <laughs> to go to Ninja. And why, 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 yeah, what's the reasoning behind that? I was, it's a long story, but basically it was just an 11th hour recommendation from someone who said, you know what, um, before this guy signs his contract with his other company, and it was at that stage, speak to him. Um, so they reached out to me that night and said, hey, do you want to have a conversation? I chat mm-hmm. with him the next day, and I said, you know what, you, what you're doing is far more interesting. Okay. Quite frankly, if I was went to that other company, I'd probably honestly still be there. It's that type of company where it was big enough that you could just continuously grow within. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, So what was it? So for it sounds like what pushed you to 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 join Ninja Van in the short term at least was really the um, the interest in the product and what they were doing. Yeah, um, it was a logistics thing. Uh, the company's only like a year and a half old. Um, they would freely admit that they kind of hacked it together very quickly. I mean, it was just basically during the day someone had an idea, during the night it was coded, during the night you know, and that works well. In the early days, you know, you, you do what you do to get ahead. You do you do just like I would never sit down in a company that's zero days old and say, let's go layer product frameworks on top of it. I would just be like, go go get <laughs> do your whatever first needs to get done. Door, you know what I mean? <laughs> whatever needs to be done. Get your first dollar, get your first customer, get your first workflow accepted, you know. Um so they were beyond that stage, but they were just before, you know, kind of, I think, probably realizing they need to formalize it. So I came in, a VP of engineering who's still there is a wonderful guy, came in at the same time. A few of us kind of just for a very short period of time, we we, we did some really cool things. I could see the opportunity. Um, I could see what they were looking to do. They were one year in. They were looking to take a tech first approach to the last mile logistics. And I could talk about forever about the last yard logistics, which I think is actually a far more interesting space than last mile. But last mile was going under a real revolution, I think, in Southeast Asia at that time. Yeah. E-commerce is exploding. It's 2014. No one's really doing it. Everyone's still using Sing Post. Yeah. Uh, along come these young entrepreneurs and like, we can do this differently. We could put tech at the forefront. And they did. And I was looking at their tech. I'm like, 
I think your heads are screwed on right. Like this is this is the right approach, mm -hmm. um, and I want to be a part of it. But like I said, I didn't want to be a part of it for a lengthy period of time. I just want to mm -hmm. just wanted to get my feet wet, launch a few features, feel proud about something, and work with some smart people. Mm -hmm. And so that was your first role in Singapore. How different mm -hmm. was that working experience in Singapore versus, let's say, China? Because these were the two countries in Asia yeah. that you were working in. Singapore, I think, is far more Western than, than China, even Shanghai, which is very cosmopolitan and very Western. Um, but this was a local company. So, I mean, the co-founders had Western education. So it's not like everything was local. But a lot of the people who were working, um, you know, engineers and stuff were very, you know, they were locally trained. Uh, and so there was, there was a bit of a, you know, it really wasn't that big of a deal, honestly. Like it, I think it's the same thing as we spoke about earlier about um, the China story, right? You, you find your angle, you find your way to rally people around you. I was, at that point, I was a product manager, meaning all I had influence over was the backlog. That's it. And all I could say yes or no to in that entire company was, yes, we're going to do this thing, and no, we're not going to do that. That is, that is entire influence I had entire, over the organization. So it's kind of the same principles I took back mm -hmm. um, you know, in China, about rallying people around you and try to get people to buy into your vision. Um, you know, establishing direction and, and a little bit of order, at least if it was just in one group of people uh, and demonstrating that, you know, things can be done um, structured. They can be done well. It doesn't mean that everything's going to grind to a halt. And it doesn't mean the bureaucracy is going to set in uh, <laughs> to some people's fear. It just means we can organize a little bit more. And sure, it might take a little bit longer because you're no longer just asking an engineer to do something and they do it. Now you got to go through me and I am a pretty fierce gatekeeper. Uh, so take that out of the picture. You have to convince me, but the benefit of that is if you've convinced me, you've demonstrated real value because I vetted it too. And whatever your team is working on, whatever you're spending money in those salaries, it's the most important thing that they could be. And that's, that's my role to make sure that that's happening. Um, so that's what I gave in return. I think people recognize that right away and working styles kind of faded away. And it was just, I think just the principles of, you know, are we delivering the best value we can and are we doing it in the right way? And if we have to cut corners, fine. Let's just have a good conversation about that. Um, but not make it our de facto standard process. Mm -hmm. So we don't start with cutting corners and then try to justify doing it right. We do it the other way around. Yeah, yeah, totally agree, totally agree. So I have a question that is almost on a tangent to something that you mentioned, um, not, sure. not totally related to Ninjavan at all, but I, I'm, <laughs> I, I want to ask the question because you said you're a pretty fierce gatekeeper and you look like a really mm -hmm. nice guy. So um, I'm very <laughs> curious to know, have you ever got into like a, you know, you know, people talk about healthy debate, but I'm not talking about that. I'm like, yeah. have you ever had to like get into like, like a shouting match just to make sure that you were guarding your, you know, yeah. guarding the product properly? Yeah, I've done that uh, multiple times. Uh, I don't like it. I'm not proud of any of those moments, even looking back, even though some of them, I think in the short term got what I wanted, right? Someone backed down. They're like, okay, I just pushed Graham to the edge and this is his response. I'm backing down because... A, he's probably pretty angry and ferocious about this. The B, um, generally speaking, people will never come to me and say you brought a weak argument, or no, you brought an incomplete argument. They might say you brought a weak argument. They might say you're you're unconvinced, but what they won't say is you didn't bring an attempt to try to convince me. Um, so usually, though, I've had both of those before. I've had shouting matches. I've had lots of tense conversations. You can't not. Um, and it makes sense, right? You look at an organization, product. At the end of the day, we're generally incentivized, whether it's in our contract or not, to deliver value, right? That's kind of like the product dose, right? Like I'm going to go out there and just make sure whoever's using whatever it is I'm building gets the best value out of it. My job is to make their life better and build their ecosystem better. 
that's not necessarily a sales job, right? Sales is actually financially incentivized to close deals. And they may be financially incentivized to close deals on 90-day cycles, right? So they're like, I need this, 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 and this. And you're like, look, I'm telling you a story about the next two years of where this company's going. And you're coming to me with a customer that's not only in our plan, but actually negative fit. And we, we've done this before. And I know you had Elay on the, the show the other the other day. And yep, Elay yep. actually worked for me at Trade Gecko. Um, I brought him over from, he's now way above me, he's taking off, he's in the stratosphere. <laughs> but uh, uh, one of the things I asked him to do at Trade Gecko, as I tangent to also here, is I asked him to give a presentation on a bad tip customer. Let's not talk about who's good for us. Talk about who's bad for us and why. And put numbers behind that. And fortunately, we had good numbers. We had numbers around retention and churn. Um, we had formulas that we were starting to build. I had a data science team there. Um, that was starting to build out lots of good algorithms. We were able to see how people moved through the system and the impact they had, and that we could tell a story. Like data by itself is meaningless, but we were actually starting to tell a story around this data, saying, you know what? When customers do certain types of interactions and they have certain types of attributes, they're probably more likely not just to buy, but to stick around for a longer period of time. And this is the message we can say to close them, right? So we can start yeah. to shrink our customer acquisition costs and increase the lifetime value of those customers because we know they're probably going to stick around. And most importantly, we're building for their profile. Hmm. That's good. And you actually went out and did a presentation on that to the team. Like, look, these are the bad fit customers. This, this is how my, it, and I did one of these too, um, where I basically spoke to the company. I said, this is how, when you, when you close these certain types of customers that are bad fit, it just means that we're going to go out of business a little bit slower. You're bringing in revenue, but that revenue is not going to cover the cost of everything we need to bring that customer in. So you've just prolonged. That's a very different conversation than saying when you bring in revenue from certain types of customers, you're actually going to supercharge our growth. Yeah. yeah. So there's a lot of that around there um, that, that you can you can have on that. And I think you just need some data and you need some, you need to be a little bit ferocious. You need to be able to tell that story. I think and I, I've said this to people before. Storytelling is your best ally. If you can go and tell a story about where you're going and why it matters for the next few years, like I said, you put the onus on everyone else to convince you otherwise. If yeah. you don't do that and you're, I, I don't care about roadmaps, but if your direction isn't sold, everyone's future request is valid. And the onus is on you as the product manager to go defend against each one of those on the merits of each one of those feature requests. And feature requests on their own, one-off, are generally pretty valid. It's not until you put it into the context of what you're trying to do overall that feature requests start to fade away because they don't belong. Mm -hmm. But if you don't take control of the narrative, you don't take control of the story, you don't mitigate against what people are coming to you with, they control the roadmap. They control yeah. your, your yeah, you've lost control as the product manager. Um, and we've all been there. I've been there. Everyone's been there. And it sucks. It takes a long time to get out of that process. Yeah, I think that that's sage advice uh, right there, right? Because features by themselves, no, I mean, I, th I don't think anyone purposely comes up to the table to give a bad suggestion, <laughs> yeah. but it's yeah. always whether or not we're serving the short term, the medium term, the long term, and most importantly, does that fit with where we want to go? Um, and, and I totally, you know, uh, I can understand what you're saying when you say that, you know, it has to fit to the direction that we want to go to. Um, and that sometimes is hard to marry, right? Especially because like you're saying, product, we're looking long term usually, right? A direction at yeah. where we want to go, that North Star. Whereas there are other functions within the company that are always very either A, day-to-day -day or incentivized short-term. And, you know, yeah. that's the difficult part of having to trade off the short-term for the long-term and for the day-to-day -day as well. So, yeah. That was... 100%. You nailed it. <laughs> you nailed it. And I think, I think there's a certain reality there that a lot of times when people come in with feature requests, 
and you do them and you feel proud about them. And then you go back and you realize my entire product is just someone else's feature. So all I did was hack together a bunch of features. Um, but those, that, that's just a small feature set of a company that's doing what we're doing well, because they sat down and said, we're going to do a certain thing really well for the next four or five months for a certain particular reason. And they kind of close it off. I mean, they, they actually, they do a really good job of that. And then your guys are coming and asking for features and you're just kind of hacking around the edges of what your competitors do well. And it's just, it's a nightmare scenario. I think if you can tell that good story, but if you can't, then yeah, you, you get in those situations where you yell. Mm-hmm. I've been there. I've done it. Not, not proud of any of them, but I've done it. Yeah, thank, thanks for being, you know, really, really honest and open uh, about this because I think part of what I want to bring to the show is really talk about what happens in the real life, right? Because it's always nice to go to conferences and people tell you all the success stories. Yeah. Nobody ever goes beneath the surface to say, hey, you know, we messed up big time here or, you know, I had to do this in order to get that, so... Yeah, um, but le- <laughs> it is, it is, right? It, it, it <laughs> yeah. sounds so pretty on the offset. You're like, I'm a product manager. And then yeah. when you start trying to explain what you do, <laughs> it's, it's, it's messy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So let's, let's move to Trade Gecko. So by, by the way, guys, yeah. um, for, for listeners, um, so uh, Graham actually alluded to this just now. He mentioned it, that he actually worked with uh, Yiwei. Uh, Yiwei was actually a previous guest on the show. A link will be uh, in the description and also up here somewhere at some point in time. And so, yeah, let's talk about Trade Gecko as well. So um, I understand you're saying that, you know, Ninja Van was going to be a short-term sort of, you know, dipping your feet into the local scene in Singapore, um, but you always wanted to go back to more that leadership role um, that you had before. And uh, Trade Gecko at that time, I imagine would have been quite young as well. Probably about five years, 100 employees in. Um, I think like a lot of startups, though, you can't count necessarily the first few years. I mean, you're, you're still half the time the co-founders are doing other jobs too, and they're, they're just trying to make it work. So it was still pretty young, but there was a growth trajectory and there was a recent series A. So there was optimism. Okay. Okay. And you built up the team there, um, the, the product team, and this time it was mm-hmm. just a product function, right? You didn't take the, the engineering function? No, but I did take the two data engineers out of engineering. Uh, I think they're super smart. I think there was a bit of a struggle on the engineering side, how to use them best. And I said, bring them in. I got them. I, I've got some stuff for them. Uh, and I took in the product marketing function as well. Um, I said, you know, look, I, I think we need to think differently about product marketing. It's not just a bridge between product and marketing for things that we're releasing, which is how a lot of companies define it. But I actually want it to be a holistic um, broad role. That is, if we have four or five product managers all focusing on an area, I'm looking at someone who can think broadly across all five of those areas and think further out. Uh, and then I took on UX and design in there, plus the product manager. So it was actually four different functions, mm-hmm. but still a pretty small team. Yeah. Let's talk about product marketing then, because you took that function. And, you know, in general, we usually talk about product marketing managers as, you know, pretty much a marketing function with sort of a product um, yeah. um, side show in that sense. Uh, but what you're saying is you kind of turned it around, right? You made, you took over that role, made it a product function, which has a side show in marketing. How, how does that work? Um, so, sorry, I, I want to explain a little bit more about my question. Yeah, sure. And the re- reason for that is marketing is one of those functions that I feel have limited time periods in their goals because it's usually campaigns Mm -hmm. and things like that. So how did you productize that marketing role for product marketing? 
Yeah, good question. I mean, to be honest, I think the first time I heard the term product marketing was when I was at Clio, when we spoke about that earlier. I actually had no idea what a product marketing, I didn't even know this thing existed. I think it's kind of like the story I was telling you about co-founders who first discover product. They're like, now what do I do? They look around and they realize there's this gigantic gap in their org that product people fill. That was how I felt when I was at Clio about product marketing. There's a whole thing that I just wasn't seeing. So I wanted to bring this person in. Um, we didn't, I mean, it was a small enough company. Almost everyone was in the same, at least from the business functions and engineering. Everyone was in the same two-floor office. So there, there was no questions about it, like structure organization. It's just a matter of what is this person or what is this department's role really going to focus on. So what I wanted to do was just look further. Like my struggle, I think, and it's with all small companies, is you're trying to solve the problems in the moment, and that makes sense. You get lots of small customers, which means you get lots of feature requests. But if you don't have, like I say, your narrative, um, all those feature requests are valid. And then you look back six months from now and you say, we did 100 things. But you know what? If you try to tell a story about what those 100 things are, you're telling 100 different stories, not a one story about how you're 100 times better. So one of the ways in which I wanted to tackle that was bringing someone in from who can be a little bit more holistic, who's got a marketing background, who can look forward, but also talk about things like, where should we be? Like, who, who should we spending our sales and marketing money on acquiring? Because that's a hard question to answer, I think, in mm -hmm. itself. It sounds easy. And if you, if you break that down, that's your ICP, you break that down into certain cohorts, you start to figure out, like, the difference between who's actually buying your service and who's using it. Like, that's a big, there's a difference between the customer and the user. We didn't have some of this stuff understood. Um, how are these things being used? For what purpose? How come we're getting the most traction and from customers who actually have the highest churn. Like where, what's going on in that messaging? Why are we attracting wrong customers? Like why are they so eager to use us and so eager to drop us? Uh, things like that, that I just couldn't explain and they were going on around me. And I think at that time, very talented team, but there wasn't one person that's starting the organization is asking questions like that. Uh, and then once we started doing analysis into the churn, and this was actually a product function. So we, we were looking into churn and things like that. Um, the numbers weren't adding up. So I think it was just, it became a very easy argument to make at that point. I just, it was a story. I don't think we're attacking the right type of customer and within those customers. I don't think we're attacking the right type of cohort. And even if we are, I don't think we're attracting the ones that we want. Um, and I need someone to go out there and start to do some just ground level analysis, get in the field and understand who these people are. Uh, and introduced a lot of interviews, a lot of ethnographic research, a lot of observation, a lot of what you see out of, you know, design thinking and lean startup mm -hmm. guides. Um, we started moving heavily in that direction, and then we brought the data engineering team to fill out the rest of it. And they, their first job was just to wire everything up. Fortunately, as a small company, you know, we had a lot of different systems, but it wasn't hard to wire up. Uh, and then the second part was just go tell us why people are churning, and then go tell us why some people are sticking around longer, right? Like, what is the story there? Are they the same type of user? And we realized actually they weren't. There was a very specific type of user that wanted Trade Gecko for what it was, as is. You didn't need to spend a lot of sales and market. Well, let me not a lot of sales. You just, need, you just need to inform them. They just weren't educated. That's all. They didn't know mm -hmm. we existed, right? And that was the output of that is we started to dive deeper and deeper and deeper into the areas where um, we should be focusing our time. And the reason why I wanted that under product is because I didn't want product to go in all directions, satisfying all customers. I wanted them to focus yeah. on what that angle was. And the only way I was going to get there is to have someone go out there and just spend some time telling us that. Okay. And she's very good. She gave she had some wonderful recommendations. Some we went with, some we didn't. Yeah. So the follow-up question to that, you took over the product marketing function. Did did that mean that the marketing the marketing function was all under you now or just that, that specific role just that, that was, part? Okay. All right. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. And and the, the again, follow-up question to that is mm -hmm. 
what would your advice be if let's say for any product person that's on listening or watching this this episode and they have that role where they have to work with marketing but they're having that same problem that you mentioned right where it's not holistic enough you, you, you know they're, they're basically doing marketing for the sake of marketing spending a budget just to prove that they can get x revenue but it's not necessarily yeah. revenue that's going to endure users who are going to come back and customers who would appreciate what you have just that they have what yeah. you want in the campaign yeah it's a good question it's a it's a hard one first of all when you work with marketing uh, as a product person and you have a good you know, like relationship that jives well, that, that's just a killer relationship, right? Like that, that is real collaboration because both of you have the power to really change things. Um, it's when it's fractured or when there's kind of a, a difference in opinions on who and what to chase, that's when it becomes a problem. But I think for product people, the biggest thing, and I was kind of alluding to this before, is you, you got to really understand your story, right? Like, um, you know, one way of kind of looking for this is, I have a six question thing I ask product people, six questions in a row I came up with, not foolproof, but it's basically this. It's, is the problem real? Why? For whom? What are we going to do about it? How are we going to bring it to market? And how are we going to measure it? And I take that more as a micro approach, right? Like that's more of like a, a six to eight week kind of work approach. But if we're looking at over the course of a year, where do we want to be in a year? And looking back, you know, questions like, you know, how, why are we going to celebrate? Why are we going to go out and, you know, clink our champagne glasses at the end of the year? What does good look like? What does success look like? Do not give me a revenue number. Okay, let's go depth, right? Let's talk about where this revenue is coming from. If you're saying we need to have $10 million from the product, fine. Next question, where is that $10 million coming from? Okay, these type of customers. Okay, next question, where are these customers? Okay, how do they know about us? How do they get to market? What are their current pains? Like, have we done this? You really need to go deep into that. And I would imagine most marketing people would enjoy doing that uh, to really get a good sense of who the customer is. You can tell a story. Like, we're going after a broad ICP and within that ICP we're going after certain types of buyer personas and within those buyer personas they have this set of problems and within those problems we already solve some of those but we don't solve the others if we solve bits and pieces of these we can kind of close the gap on them we can start to create a real true product competitive mode and you, you can break out a story over the course of like a year like that uh, and it's really important just to kind of focus on what value you're driving how are you going to measure it um, in a year from now, let's say all these customers come on board, what are you going to do the year after, right? Are there more of them? Have you just tapped out that cohort? Like things like that, I think are just really important for products to be asking marketing. Product needs to be in that conversation, just like in engineering, you can't be left out. But yeah. I would never go ask to a product person to necessarily lead that unless they're a product marketer. That's where you need to overlap between marketing. I think that's the upfront side of product marketing. The uh, back end is, okay, how are we bringing this to market, right? Like we got a solution that works. You got customers we know who want it. Now they need to be educated. They need to be informed. They need to know about this. What is our messaging? How are we positioning this? How are we packaging this? And that to me is a collaboration between product and marketing or quite frankly, I think just a growth team. A growth team will go out and cover all those things, right? And it, it, it takes a product and it takes growth all wrapped into one big ball and it answers those questions all at once. In which case, you don't really have product and marketing. You just have... Problem solution fit and you know product market fit. Those are the two things you're really focusing on. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a good split for product and, and marketing. True. So how do you then draw the or rather marry the tension between one person who reports to a product leader yeah. and and the rest of the team that reports to a marketing leader in that sense? Yeah, I mean, you'll never get away from this. It's matrix organization, like yeah. 101, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. um, and I have this in my org right now right. where I work. Um, I have people working in various parts of the regions. They actually report to someone else, but they're actually in my function, right? So it's it really, it's, it's, I think it's just um, 
this is the soft skills, I think, management and leadership, right? I, I don't have a formula to give you. Uh, I don't have a hard set of answers for that. Um, I think it's just working on making sure there are a few things I think you do need to make sure you truly understand, right? Like, how is everyone incentivized? Um, how is the team incentivized? You know, in terms of things like races or whatever it is you're doing to help identify um, who owns what, be very, very clear about that. Um, I struggle this with a lot uh, with cross-functional teams where people are like, look, I'm happy to do anything asked of me. I have a broad set of skills, but I'm being asked to do certain things that don't marry with anything that I've done up to this point. And it doesn't make sense. Not that I want to play the, it's not in my job description, but people ask me to do things way outside of that. Should I do it? Is usually the follow-up. And then I have to go kind of speak with the manager and get a sense of like, why are people getting kind of pivoted out into roles that they don't really have the right fit for? Um, I think a lot of it's soft skills. You need to check in a lot. You need to work very closely with that other manager. But I think also you need to trust people on the ground. I think that's probably number one. Like mm-hmm. I could go in and tell a product marketer, a man- product manager, and a data scientist and an engineer, you guys are the growth team right now, or you guys are in a growth function within some other team. You do this, you do this, you do this, you do this. There's no way I'm going to cover every single potential responsibility or decision. There's no way I can do that in advance. I just have to set them up the way a product person would. Here's where we're trying to go. Here's how we're going there. Here's why you're on the team. Here's how the team is going to define success. Um, and then, of course, they'll have to work with their own managers to figure out how they're going to define independent success. I can't give a promotion to someone outside of my team. Mm-hmm. It's messy. Honestly, it, it's messy. There's no clear ways to do this. I think the best thing you can do, like I said, clearly understand the roles, make sure it's communicated well, make sure everyone agrees to and understands that, um, and draw it out, make sure it's in writing, and start there. And know very quickly you're probably going to rip that to shreds because reality is going to set in. Um, but be ready to have that conversation and check in frequently. And just as long as that's there, I think the team can handle a lot of the rest. And only if you have real conflict, then it becomes messy. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So now, so this is the interesting question that, that I've been saving up to ask you. Because sure. from the entire conversation that we've had, you know, it's very apparent that you're such a passionate product person. Um, but now you're actually the COO in in my doc. Um, what what yeah? What's the thinking behind moving from product to a COO role? Yeah, I mean, in the organization, product does fall under me, along with engineering and, and all the development side, but also the operations. And I think this is one of those things in small companies: the COO role is absolutely nebulous. It's impossible to define. You go out to companies like ours, under a few hundred employees, and grab ten CEOs. Uh, they will give you different job responsibilities and what they're responsible for. You know, like it's it's just different, right? So when I came in and we started talking about the impact I wanted to make with the CEO, who's an incredibly smart person, a doctor and a lawyer, Ivy League educated, um, incredibly smart person. It just made sense. Like when you talk about the story of where you want to be and how you want to get there, it didn't make sense for bits and pieces of this org to fall under different people. And so my case thing was kind of clear, like, let's, let's put it under one person, let's put it under me, and here's how we're going to tie it all together. Um, because our operations functions, and a few of the strays, like people operations and some other things also fall under me. Um, but the, our ability to deliver is actually very tightly connected between uh, our operations as a medical company, as well as technical operations. Uh, in terms of the pyramid, the buck has to stop somewhere. So I said, look, just put me there and I will put in place the leadership capabilities you need. And then they will turn around and build up the teams they're responsible. My job is to make sure that they're driven, motivated, inspired, and guided in the right direction. Their job is to help make sure we get there, right? And then the interplay between getting there and what there is, um, that, that's what I manage on a day-to-day basis, along with a lot of fires. <laughs> of course. Of it's course. A fire, it is a firefighting <laughs> role like you've never seen. So that, that's another part of it, too. A bit yeah. of a culture shock on that one. 
Okay. Okay. And how difficult was that transition from, you know, being a product leader? Because you, you, like, like we've mentioned, right, you've done so many great product stuff along the way. Mm-hmm. And now it's, it's, it's definitely the product function is still there, like you said, but yeah. it's that and a lot more. How mm-hmm. difficult was that transition? What did you have to learn? What did you have to unlearn? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, unlearn is a good one. I think it's a very broad role, right? Like if you talk about the functions and forget about the org structure for a second, just this group of people is responsible for producing a certain type of impact, right? And in order to do that, it actually touches a lot of things along the way. And then you add in complexities like <clears throat> taking our system and bringing it into Vietnam, which is a very, you know, or bring it into Cambodia, bring it into the Philippines or wherever else, right? This is a regulated industry. So now you got to deal with regulations and try to figure out how that fits in your system. You got local teams versus regional teams. Um, you got very large customers. Um, they're fractured all over the place too. So managing those on the day, like it becomes a very, very broad role. So what I had to unlearn, um, which is still a struggle for me. And it's actually a struggle for a few people around me too, kind of say to me like, Hey, you need to get involved in this and this and this. Like you need to get involved. I'm like, the moment I get involved in that thing, that is my job. I, I can't mm. do, I'll do that to the exclusion of everything else, but you got to trust that we put the right people in place. Um, so one of the things I had to unlearn was how to not get involved in some of the solutioning and really stay a, a layer above it to make sure I'm working with people who are solving it to understand. Here's what good looks like. Here's how we're going to get there. Here's what it means for us to see. Here's the impact of, you know, the decisions that you're going to make. Um, and here's some guidelines and restrictions and sometimes some constraints. Uh, we have a thing we call the Trump card. If you, if you know what that is, when you play a Trump card, it's nothing to do with presidents or anything else <laughs> um, a, a very old term it's a trump card card you play when you just win you yeah. like once the moment you play that card everything's over and you win we have a concept here where um everything is at the, the team level like the smart people are able to make smart decisions i have the right to play a trump card um and that is when i just come in and i overrule and not no questions asked but I overall but i've only played one once uh and it was stupid i didn't need to it was, it was a meaningless thing I, I learned from that um Reality is I don't need to play a trump card that much. And that, mm. that, that was actually my, my, almost like my personal KPI. How many trump cards did I have to play to keep things in order? But the reality is none, because I think we put together a good story and a good team and they're taking care of that. Um, so I did have to unlearn how not to get involved deeply um, or at least learn when I really need to step in. Does someone need my protection? Um, mm. Sometimes you need that in small companies or does someone need me to step in and handle a customer? because you know, they've gone as far as they can. You know, there's certain types of things that I have to step in on. Other than that, um, I think that's what I've done. Learn, learning, again, managing a very broad spectrum of things is, is it's hard. Yeah. Like a lot of times people come to me and they're like, well, what's, what's the metric on this? I'm like, ah, I don't know. And like, Shouldn't you know? I'm like, I probably should. But honestly, it's not at the top of my list of things I care about right now. So yeah. go, someone in this organization knows that number. Go to them. The fact that I don't know isn't the problem, right? That, that's not pretend like that's the problem. Um, so there, there, there's a little bit of the political side too. You, know, mm. you work with other people who are um, driven in their own countries. And then of course, there's all the differences in um, you know, incentives too. So all the things you experience as a product person come here as well. Mm-hmm. Really, it's not that radically different. If you, operations is really just, it's a very workflow-oriented thing. And I've got a philosophy that I put in place that all ops problems are tech problems and all tech problems are AI problems, right? So right now we're dealing <laughs> with stuff manually and that's okay we need to start automating and making a lot of our problems go away. And then we can start being smart about it by, by future kind of, or using more future, you know, future, you know, paths or, or ideas. Um, so I think those are the kind of things that have kind of hit me. Um, there's a lot of weight on the shoulders kind of stuff too, right? There's mm-hmm. a lot of questions. There's a lot of stuff going on. There's a lot of ways things can break. 
Same yeah. with all of our competitors. We're all in the same space, right? Um, there's so many ways things can break. And like I said, firefighting is largely on me. And, you know, when, when something breaks, no one goes to sales and says, what's going on there, right? It, yeah. it comes up through ops, right? And then it's me and engineering and tech. And we all got to jump on this. And some of them are pretty serious. And those are the times you got to get involved. So it is, it's just managing that time, managing the emotions, managing um, the effectiveness, and just knowing full well that I'm not doing the work, which means people who are working for me need to be motivated, inspired, and guided to do the work. Yeah. And if I'm not doing that, then essentially I failed. It's no different than being a product leader or even a product manager <laughs> at that point. Yeah. Okay. D- different, different set of degrees, but it's the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I want to ask you one last question. Um, I, I know sure. we've gone past the hour mark, but so because um, your career has taken you to many companies, many places, um, and in your case, um, it sounds like it was sort of, you know, you had to follow. There, there's a reason for it, right? You weren't jumping companies for, for the sake of it. But the fact yeah. remains that you've had to, to always switch companies in that sense. And one of the yeah. things that gets talked about in the product circles is, you know, how you really understand the product as time passes, right? You get better with time. So in your yeah. case, how, what, what are your thoughts on that, having had to switch constantly in that sense? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and I think, I think there's a lot of truth to that, right? Like when you, when you grew up with a product, um, you, you, you really understand that well. But it, my counter that I usually ask people, like when you say, when you say that you grew up with a product or you, you spend a lot of time with it, you grew with it, what does that really mean? Like, are you that much better at understanding your market? Are you that much understand, better at understanding how to innovate within your space? Are you that much better at um, positioning or pricing or packaging? Or do you just understand features better now than you did five years ago because you're a little bit closer to it? So I think the first thing is just to get a sense around that, right? Like, what does it actually mean to grow up with a product? Um, but for those who've done it well, and I've met tons, and I'm sure you have too, people who really... Um, I, I think that is actually really beneficial. I've met people working in the same company for like 15 years. There's a lot of value in that. Uh, honestly, I'm not that type of person. Mm-hmm. Uh, I consider myself more of a journalist. Uh, I've kind of hacked the learning process a little bit out of necessity, um, but asking the right types of questions, you know, those kind of six questions I gave you before, mm-hmm. right? Like, it's a good question to drop on your first day on the marketing team to figure out whether or not we know what we're doing or not, right? So I can usually hack away months and months and months away of a product discovery process, I think, really quickly just because I've done it enough time. So there's that side, and I think just in general, when I come into industries or companies without having a background, uh, I can be a lot more honest. I can be a lot less attached. And I think this is one of the things that I actually serve me well. <clears throat> Excuse me is that I don't get attached to things, right? I mean, I'm mm-hmm. willing to start something and throw it away right away. It's like, there, there's no reason for me to believe that this thing that I thought was the best thing in the world is useful anymore. And I will stop right now and move on. So taking that attitude in allows me to come in and just ask other people to do the same thing too, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think if you can figure out a story and you can tie it all together, you can come and learn about a product very quickly, you can get over some of those early, those early challenges you have when you come into a new domain. There are probably some exceptions if I had to go work for NASA, not that they would ever hire me, I'd have to go get a PhD <laughs> in aeronautics and then I'd have to go in and learn all that. There's a reason people stay at this company for 30 years, right? I mean, a reason. Um, whereas, you know, if you work in a Silicon Valley based company, you can kind of jump ship and you, you take all the learnings you have with you and product's product, right? I mean, discovery is discovery, innovation is innovation. You can take all your playbook and apply it in any place. In fact, I actually prefer when I, when I reach into my design thinking playbook or when I reach into my lean startup playbook. I prefer not to actually be too close to the problem because 
um, even as much as I want to be detached, I, I'd rather come at it fresh eyes. Yeah. And I think if you can do that and take it and codify it and make it actually your onboarding, like you actually put that into your onboarding. I'm going to stay away from understanding this and this in my first three days. I'm going to question these things. I'm going to go understand this part of the product. I'm not going to bother worrying about that part of the product. This is the business model I care about. Here's the eight people I'm going to learn from very, very quickly. You can put together an onboarding plan that I think hacks out, you know, your first year on the job in the first few weeks. I truly do believe that. And that's kind of how I've approached it. Um, so pros and cons. For me, I think it's been wonderful. I've learned a million things. I, I love to talk about different things and different topics because I've been exposed to them. And I never would have got that if I just joined a company and became a, a you know subject matter expert forever. I could go become a consultant at that point, but I don't think I'd be able to move up into the ranks of leadership if I didn't have the breadth of what I've learned and the people that I've worked with. Thank you. Thank you. So then now we come to the final section of the show. Um, which is your song. So, um, yeah, why don't yeah. you tell us a little bit about that song you chose? Yeah, yeah. I've got lots, I mean, I've got lots of songs I've chosen from, but uh, I chose Yellow Lead Better from Pearl Jam. I don't know, I, for me, I think um, it kind of fits with me. You can tell, like, I, I like to use a lot of words. I like to tell a lot of stories. I like to actually fill in the details and not force someone to come to me and say, okay, you gave me a seven-word answer for what should have been a 700-word answer, and I'm going to force you to ask 100 follow-up questions. For good or for bad, I tend to err on more words and more explanation, more story. Um, and Yellow Lead Better, I think, is kind of the opposite of that. Rather than trying to be clear, if you ever listen to Yellow Lead Better, yeah. I have no idea, no clue what those words are. It sounds like a guy mumbled for seven minutes through a song. I can't understand it. And to me, it's kind of the opposite of what I tried to be. Um, so I was like, you know what? I, I love that song. And for me, I'm, I'm a hacker. I like to move quickly on things a lot of times, which is why I like doing things like make sushi, right? When you sit down and make sushi, then... 10 minutes on one piece of sushi because you're, you're just going to be a perfectionist in that moment, but that's mm -hmm. not who I am. I'm a hacker. So when I see something like yellow lead better or hear it, it's it kind of like me a hacker song, right? Like it, it, it doesn't tell you what it means. It's yeah. a bit ambiguous. It goes all over the place, but you know, it sounds pretty good. And I'll listen to it more and I'll, I'll keep listening to it even if I have no idea what it means. Yeah. I was just going to say that because, <laughs> cause you were saying that, you know, you're the type of person who likes the words, but that song has very little discernible words. <laughs> he keeps changing it up in the concerts. So. No idea. Okay. Honestly, I couldn't tell you what's going on in that song. And that's what I love about it. And that's why I was like, look, maybe it's the anti-pattern or the anti-hero song for me, but uh, that's why I chose that one. Okay. Have a okay. little fun with it. But yeah, of course, I mean, the fact that you chose a Pearl Jam song tells me that you're a good product person, so. <laughs> <laughs> it's my era. It's the early 90s grunge. Yeah. I grew up in Vancouver. They came from Seattle. So yeah, that's true. So it's very nearby, right? Yeah. How many times have you watched them live? I've never seen them live. To be honest, I'm not really a concert person, but oh, right. I've seen them live on like YouTube. I've seen them okay. live elsewhere. Um, so they're one of them. I like all ranges of music, but they're, mm -hmm. they're one that sticks around with me. Nice, nice. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Are there is there any last words you? Oh, well, that's a terrible thing to say. No last words, but uh, you know, <laughs> any last thoughts that you would like to leave with our viewers, listeners on the show? Yeah, for all the product people out there, uh, it's a messy job. It's a hard job. It's it's very easy to find yourself in a feature factory. But I think if you just stay true to product principles, good product principles, um, you will get through it. And you can fight through and just focus on those outcomes. Focus on why you're doing what you're doing and whose life you make better. Um, and it'll allow you to take an elevation. Uh, you can step back and have a little bit of relaxation about, you know, what you're doing and why it's important. So um, focus on the big picture. Focus on the good stuff you're doing and for whom. And let all the other stuff fade away because this is a job you want. There's going to be a lot of other stuff that you're going to need to 
the push away. That's great advice. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, that was Graham Kennedy, who's currently the COO at uh, MyDoc. And we're so grateful that he's taken the time to be on this show. Um, as usual, if you want to know a bit more about what we do, we can, you can find us on YouTube, you can find us on podcasts, you can also go to www.productcondenser.com and do reach out to me if you have any guests that you would like to see on the show as well. So until we meet again, thank you, bye-bye, and terima kasih. See you.